So this morning we're going to begin the uh, we're going to begin the book of Acts, and um, we'll be here for uh, for a number of months as we make our way through this. Typically, it's referred to as the Acts of the Apostles. That's uh, kind of the idea. But one of the things you're going to see as we work our way through the book is that it's not so much the Acts of the Apostle; it's the Acts of God. It, this this book really is uh, it's it's the supplemental to uh, the book of Luke. The book of Luke is showing us the person of Jesus. That's that's his uh, that's Luke's intention, right? Is to to hold up Jesus, to tell us who he is. Um, both of these were written to the same person. Um, both Luke and Acts are written to this uh, guy Theophilus. Um, someone said that uh, he. Um, they think he might be uh, Irish because um, in some translations it's O Theophilus. I don't know. Um, but uh, so it's written to the to the same guy, the same character, and uh, and essentially he is someone who apparently um, didn't believe. And so his goal here is to help us and to enable us to understand how it is that. This gospel and this person Jesus went from nothing to essentially changing the world. And by the time he's writing, we're, we're thinking of, you know, the, just their known sphere, really. Um, imagine to have, to be able to look back and to see how far the gospel has spread and the links to which it has gone in this world. It's, it's everywhere. Um, people all over the globe have heard uh, about this man Jesus and the acts of the apostles. And so what we're going to get here is how did that gospel spread? How, how, how did the gospel go from being a seed to a, a fully grown, um, tree? How did the church go from 11 guys meeting with Jesus to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people and, and, a, and a growing, expanding gospel. How did that happen? And um, and I think through some of that, my hope for us is um, it, it will kind of jar for us and, and trigger for us an, an understanding of what it means to be the church. Because this is really the story of how God built his church in the world. This morning, we're going to look particularly, as we as we look at these first 11 verses, um, what, what we have is uh, really this presented for us is this idea of the ascension of Jesus. And so that's kind of where I want to I want to zero in uh, this morning for us. If you had if you and I had lived 500 years ago, the ascension would have been just as prominent in our time of worship as Christmas and Easter the same way that we talk about those and we celebrate those and we kind of have those big days, the Ascension would have been one of those days. It's typically celebrated uh, about four weeks uh, or so after um, uh, Easter. Forty days after is typically when it's celebrated. And so um, it, it, in the ancient church, it was a celebration um akin to our Easter and our Christmas. But somewhere over time, um, it began to kind of fall out of 
vogue, if you will, and and we just don't think much about it. How many, how many of you have marked on your calendars Ascension Sunday? Yeah, we we, we just kind of zip right by it. And yet, Luke felt it important enough that he closed out his gospel with the Ascension and he opened up the book of Acts with the Ascension. And here's just one of the, you know, we... We kind of zip right through, okay? You know, uh, say a prayer, have a relationship with Jesus, and just you just get Jesus. Um, the doctrine of the ascension and everything that is bound up in it is absolutely critical for the Christian life. What happens in and around the ascension of Jesus is critical to your existence as a Christian. And what I hope to do this morning is, is kind of show you that. And so as we talk about the ascension, let's just talk a little bit about what does it mean? Um, and, and what does it mean for us as, as Christians? Um, because it isn't just, you know, it's not a celebration of the miraculous disappearance of Jesus. Okay? It's the celebration of Jesus ascending, okay, rising up in front of his disciples, the apostles, rising up in front of them and being captured and developed in a cloud. Now, you think, well, okay, that's where you would go if you went up, right? You would go into the clouds. No, not not a cloud, the cloud. Because all through the Bible... God presents himself in his glory cloud. All right? Are you with me? Do you remember uh, in the Exodus, as the people were being led out of the land, they were led by a pillar of cloud and fire. Fire at night, cloud in the day. Um, when they're there and they're at Mount Sinai and they're, they're approaching God, he comes down and, and a cloud envelops the mountain. That cloud is the, is what we, what theologians would refer to and call the glory cloud of God. That's, it signifies His presence. And so there is the glory cloud and Jesus rises up and He ascends into heaven. The glory cloud of God envelops Him. And, and then what? Is He just gone? What happens? Where does he go? Who is he with? What is he doing? Let's talk about that. Here is the first thing that the ascension means for us. It means, and this is almost counterintuitive, but it means we have a greater presence with Jesus than we did prior. Say, well, how, how can that be? How can it be that Jesus was with us and then he left us and we have a greater presence now than we had then? So there's a really interesting story in John chapter 20, okay? And in John chapter 20, Jesus has risen from the dead and uh, so the resurrection has happened and he is uh, he is there at the tomb, and Mary's there, and Mary is 
upset. She's distraught. And so Jesus speaks to her, and they have this conversation. And she figures out it's him, right? And she cries out, Rabboni. And so they have this interaction. And Jesus says to her, he says, don't hold on to me. Don't cling to me, for I am soon ascending. I haven't yet, but I am soon. Go tell the go tell my brothers. Okay? Go tell the go tell the the disciples what you've seen and what is getting ready to happen. Okay? But it's this it's this interaction that Jesus has where he says to Mary, Mary, don't don't hold on to me. I'm ascending. I'm going to the Father. And and it's a passage, admittedly, that maybe is uh, is a little hard. Sometimes people don't really get it. But it seems fairly straightforward that Mary okay, had lost Jesus. So he's gone into the grave. He's been there three days. She's weeping. She's distraught. Her heart hurts. She comes back. The tomb is empty. Now she's thinking, I can't even come to the tomb. He's not even here, right? And so she is upset. She's lost him. And then he appears, and he shows himself to her. Now, what what do you think she's thinking? I'm going to grab onto him, and I ain't letting him go again, right? This hasn't happened, but I, I could have told a story about one of my children and a lost dog, okay? could have made this up. Preachers do that. They make stories up occasionally. Um, this hasn't happened, but it could happen, okay? And that is the dog gets lost, and so we've gone out on a search, and we've looked for the dog, and we find our, our beloved Yazzie, and we bring her home, our golden retriever, and we get her home, and little Christopher gets her, and, and he makes her lie in his bed, and he clings to her because he was a broken-hearted little boy, and he just can't imagine ever letting that puppy out of his sight again. You get me? That's Mary. That's Mary after this has all happened. And there is Jesus, and she grabs him, and she's clinging to him. And Jesus says, don't hold on to me. I'm ascending to the Father. Now, at at first glance, you would think, that's terrible news. You're leaving again? But what Jesus is saying is, I'm ascending to the Father, and what I will give you is my spirit, which will be better than what you have now. Better. How, how is that the case? Well, because he would not always be there with her. I mean, he would go to sleep, he's gonna travel, he's a, he's an itinerant teacher, preacher, so he's gonna be going hither and yon, and she won't always be able to be with him. But when he ascends into heaven and he sends his spirit, ah, a greater presence is had by all his children. And that's one of the things that he's communicating. And and that's one of the things that is going on here in the ascension. Because look at what he says. Um, verse 
uh, verse 7 in Acts 1. It is not for you to know the times and date. That, listen, they're interested. They're still messed up. Their theology still messed up. Jesus, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? When are you going to make this, when are you, when are you going to make Israel great again? Okay? Um, and so they all gathered around and they asked him this question. And he says, it's not for you to know the times and dates. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and the uttermost parts of the earth. And he said this, he was taken up before their eyes and he, he's telling them, wait, wait for more. You're going to get more of me when the spirit comes on you because he will indwell you. And that's what the ascension, that's the first thing that we get from the ascension. At the very end of Matthew chapter 28, as, as he, Jesus is giving the Great Commission, what does he say? And, lo, <laughs> that's why I don't like to fly, right? Because he's only with us when we're on the ground. Uh, and, lo, I am with you always. Okay? How are you going to be with me always if you're leaving? I'm going to be with you always because I am going to send my spirit who will indwell you. And that's one of the things that we're going to see in the book of Acts is that it is that indwelling work of the Holy Spirit that allows this church to grow and flourish and be all that it is and is going to be is by the spirit of God given to us at the time of the ascension. It's connected to Jesus' ascending and going and doing his work his session, okay, as he sits at the Father's right hand, he is working for us. And part of that is we get him. We get a greater presence because the Holy Spirit now indwells us in a way that it hasn't prior to Jesus' ascension. The second thing is, it means, and, and this is one of the this is a little bit challenging to communicate, but it means that all things can be good. It means that all things can be good. And here's what I mean by that. When, when you get to the ascension, you've gone through the worst event in human history in the crucifixion of the Son of God. And now, so you've had the crucifixion, Jesus has died on a cross, he's been buried, now he's resurrected, amazing event. And then we get the ascension. And at the ascension, Jesus rises, and as you all confessed this morning in the Nicene Creed, right? he sits at the right hand of the Father. That's an important feature, right? The right hand, the Father, is the place of honor. It's a metaphor because God doesn't have a body like us, so he doesn't have a right hand. But he's sitting in the place of honor. He is sitting in the place of power and authority. He is sitting in, in the place that is designated as the place that you sit when you have power and authority and governance and all of those things. And so Jesus goes to the right hand of the Father because he's been given now all authority on earth and in heaven over everything. And so kind of in a twofold way, then, the ascension means that Jesus, okay, has gone through the worst event, and, and now the cross is really 
is the way. Unless, Jesus tells his disciples, unless a man loses his life, he can't find it. And Jesus actually embodies that in the crucifixion. He dies, he's resurrected, and then he lives and he reigns. And so the worst event in human history is transferred into the greatest event in human history, and that is the ruling and reigning of Jesus Christ over all creation. And in our lives, those things which are terrible, which seem awful, often are the things in which the greatest good comes for us. And, and you can go back through, you know, we talk about this, uh, Romans 8, and we talk about Genesis chapter 50, when here's Joseph, and he, you know, his brothers, they throw him in a pit, and he's sold to slaves, and, and he spends years and years and years in jail, and it's terrible, and all of these things, it's just, a, it's a horrible existence. I mean, when you look at his life, it's pitiful, sad. And then, God allows him to rise to the greatest position of prominence in all of Egypt in order that he would prepare a way for his people. It's mind-boggling. And in the same way, in the crucifixion and in Jesus' ascension, we get that. And we get the we get the knowledge and the truth that He is ruling and reigning over all things. Listen to the way the Apostle Paul says it in Ephesians 1, beginning in 19. And His incomparably great power for us who believe, that power is the same as the mighty strength He exerted when He raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed, this is important, all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything and every way. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying that at the ascension, when he's seated at the right hand of the Father, all authority, everything was put under his feet. It means he's, he's in control. He's got it all in control. And he gets really specific. And he says, especially the church. You, me. What is he saying? He's saying, the church that Jesus himself promised he would build, he is building. And he is doing it from the right hand of the Father. His governance over his church is prime. And he's going to grow it. And it is growing, expanding, still growing. Now, you may say, well, we look around the United States, the church may or may not be terribly healthy. Go to South America. Go to Africa. Go to Asia. Go to China. Go to places like that, and the church is thriving and flourishing and expanding and growing. Listen, the Presbyterian Church in Brazil 
dwarfs us. It's about three times our size in Brazil. Three times the size of the Presbyterian Church in America in the United States. He's growing his church, exactly as he said. And so it means, the ascension means he's he's at work. He is governing all things and he is working them out for his glory and for his good. And if it's good for him and brings glory to God, guess what? It's going to be good for you. And it's good for us. Here's the third thing. The ascension means that you have the best advocate in the universe. In any universe, you have the best advocate. Is Happy here? Our lawyer. The one time I'm going to talk about lawyers in a positive way, and Happy is not here this morning. Somebody please tell him. You and I, in the ascension, get the best lawyer on the planet. Okay? And here's how. Listen to Hebrews 7. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. This is Jesus. Because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens, unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. So, studying for this, I heard somebody talk about it, and it resonated with me because I remember thinking the exact same thing. And this person said that when they heard this doctrine, when they were a young Christian, okay, that Jesus is interceding for us. Here's how it worked for them. Here's how they thought of it. And and like I said, when I heard him describe it, I said, aha, I thought the same thing. And perhaps you have too. I sin. So I've done something. I get down, I pray, God, please forgive me for fill in the blank. I could put just about anything in it. And in my mind, what I believed was happening was that Jesus was then going to God the Father and saying, well, Sam's screwed up again. Not unusual, but he's done it again. Would you please forgive him? He's not going to do it anymore. Certainly going to try hard not to. Would you please forgive him? Yes, I'll forgive him. That was how I pictured it happening. Jesus constantly going to the Father, asking for me to be pardoned time and time again. Bad picture. Bad image. Take that one and suck it out of your brain, okay? Because that's not at all what is happening. That certainly isn't what Hebrews 7 tells us, nor the rest of Scripture. So, Jesus has gone into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And part of his ascension, part of his session, the work that he is doing is he is our intercessor with the Father. But he's in, he's our intercessor in, in a much different way. 
imagine it as a courtroom. And you're there, you're guilty. It's the strangest courtroom you will ever see because you're admitting, I did it. I did it. I, you name it. I did it. Right? So you're completely and totally guilty. And Jesus is saying, He's completely and totally guilty. And God the Father knows you're completely and totally guilty. But Jesus also says to the Father, but I've paid that penalty. I've already done the time. And so you are now declared not guilty on the basis of what Jesus has done. Because he is your high priest. So in your sin, Jesus is with the Father saying, I've paid it. I've paid it. He's not guilty. In fact, here are all my good deeds. In fact, not only are you not guilty, but now the Father, when he looks at you, he sees him. He sees Jesus. Jesus has Good in your place. And that's what that means. In all respects. In his righteous deeds, he stood in your place. In his death, he died in your place. All of that is now to your account. And so when the just judge is looking at you, he sees him. And he is in your place. It's the strangest courtroom ever. But that's the courtroom. That's what it looks like. And so in his ascension, Jesus went and he turned the throne room of God into the courtroom of God where you and I have been declared not guilty. And not just not guilty. We've been declared perfectly righteous. All because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so... That's what it means that he went, he ascended into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God the Father. He is, he is meeting the justice that is demanded by God the Father. And he's active in doing that for us. Now that's an amazing, that's an amazing set of truths. And there's, there's more. There, there are all sorts of ramifications that flow out of that. But this morning, as we come to the table, what a great opportunity to think about the presence of Christ, to think about the way in which He has set the world right in our, and the way that He is working everything out for the good of those who love Him and according to His purpose for his church as he builds us individually and corporately as he has met the bar of justice for us. And we get to celebrate the supper. We get to visually see that presence with us, be reminded of his work for us as we come and as we gather together. And as we move to the table, let me let me remind you that this is not my table, it's not our table, it's it's the Lord's Supper.